0: Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay? H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader,
1: pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag.
0: Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection.
1: Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag.
0: And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice.
1: And now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Sunny Days. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. We are very glad today to have the wonderful Dr. Elizabeth Hinton. Elizabeth Hinton is an associate professor in the Department of History and the Department of African-American Studies at Yale with a secondary appointment as professor of law at the school. Hinton's research focuses on persistence of poverty, racial inequality, and urban violence in the 20th century United States. Now, she has written two fantastic books, The War on Poverty, The War on Crime, and today we're going to be talking about her latest book, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion since the 1960s. Dr. Hinton, welcome to... To active allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and get to talk to you guys.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. So we're going to jump right in. And, you know, as we ask every guest on every show, the first question is, what were you marinated in?
1: (laughs) I was
2: marinated in, in justice and love and, a drive to change the world, particularly for people who were and are in captivity.
0: Okay. Okay. And I normally don't ask a follow-up question, but is that based on like your, your parental group, uh, how they viewed the world or
2: yeah, that how kind of, yeah. Yeah. So I'm um my mom is, is Jewish and my dad is is black. So, you know, just like both of the, the ancestors on both sides. I mean my mom and both were born in the nineteen forties. So World War Two just like had a profound was a you know, profoundly shaped their world as did the civil rights movement and being an interracial couple um in the nineteen sixties in the early nineteen sixties before it was legal. Um and so I think, you know, on both sides the history of enslavement, the history of the Holocaust and Jim Crow was just very much a part of you know, what we talked about in our household and our childhood. And my mom, um, worked, she's a social worker who worked in prisons in the 1970s and, uh, my dad did art programs in prison. So I think there's just been this, you know, awareness of the injustices, um, of the criminal legal system and the ways in which these in many ways are the kind of latest manifestations of, historical um, developments and trends and so I think that's something that I was just always very aware of and committed to justice and 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 committed to changing or ending um, conditions of confinement for people
1: okay yeah, absolutely yeah, you know it's it. it's Thank funny because my husband and I were watching your videos and I swear to God I said I think she's part Jewish I'm Jewish I'm like I don't know but my Judar is like there's something <laughs> <laughs> going on here <laughs> so funny. At any rate, the book is incredible. So from June 1968 through 1972, there were about 2,000 rebellions in segregated black communities. And I love the way you go through this and the history and the way that the wording and the word choice, of course, with the white supremacist word choice, it's riots and gangs and all this bullshit. When, when it's white rebellion, it's a totally different story. So take, talk to us about those rebellions and why that word rebellion is so key. And we've got to stop saying riots.
2: Yeah, so... um you know, we, I don't think that we have fully appreciated the extent to which the the socioeconomic root causes of this political violence, um, you know, throughout this, throughout the mid to late 1960s, but especially in that period of 68 to 72 in the early, um, into the early 1970s is really rooted in a shared set of grievances and demands as a civil rights movement. Um, you know, just like the nonviolent direct action protests, these violent protests were about um, an end to police brutality, protection against white supremacist terrorism, access to jobs and educational opportunities, and housing—essentially, political and economic inclusion in American society. And instead of recognizing these pol- these political these violent political acts as a form of protest policymakers and law enforcement officials, you know, saw them as, as criminal and senseless and meaningless, and they called them riots. I mean, Johnson himself, following kind of the first major uh, rebellion in, in Harlem in, in the summer of 1964, said, you know, this has nothing to do with civil rights. This is, you know, not about the March on Washington. This is, you um, this is criminal. This has to do with you know juvenile delinquency and crime, and we're going to treat it as such. And so, in labeling, in in failing to recognize this as a form of protest, as the outgrowth of you know in in the tooth in the thousands of cities that erupted in that later period, um, you know there. For for decades, uh, activists had tried through nonviolent direct action channels to to to, to change um, their immediate conditions. And you know, when people start throwing rocks at police or burning stores or looting, that's when they have they feel like they have no other recourse um, to make change. And so, instead of recognizing that, the response has been <laughs> uh, more police instead of giving people. The, the, the basic social services and resources that they need to live full and vital and healthy lives and so in in with in labeling these incidents as riots and therefore criminal the solution becomes the police and we've been stuck in this policy cycle ever since um, where we where we really need to get beyond the police if we're if we're, if we're serious about preventing um, the kind of anger and despair that's behind this, polit- this, this form of political violence in the future.
0: Yeah, yeah. this is, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to use the word interesting for lack of a better one. Lisa and I were talking about the book earlier and she's like, oh, I'm so excited. And I was like, I'm not, and it has nothing to do with the content of the book because it is exceptional. Right. And I recommend that everybody read it. Yes. I, I, I must be going through a period of black fatigue. Like that, I think that's how I'm feeling. And so when I I started reading the book and peeling back, and by the way, I love the way you have it broken out. And you talk about the origins and then the cycle and the projects and um, the vigilantes and the snipers and the poisoned tree. Uh, What came to mind, I, I actually wrote this down. I said, this isn't new or news, really. The police... Have been serving in the capacity to protect and serve European Americans since their existence. And so um, I don't, I don't, I, I felt like it's important to say that, but I also don't want it to take away from the, the fantastic job that you've done in putting this together to help people see like this didn't just happen in 2020 and prior to, right? This is something that has been going on for years and the way that the narrative has been framed to make it something, to make it appear as though it's something that it really isn't. And so when you talk about um, or if you would talk about (laughs) the projects in uh, Cairo, Illinois and Uh the, the Pyramid Courts now this right here the pyramid courts for Africa and the Elmwood place for the white American dream. Like, Yeah, I I took some deep, deep breaths and heavy sighs. I meant to light a candle, but I just, because I'm like,
1: I really need some. (laughs) It's heavy. You know, and I wanted to just explain the excitement for me is that I want, especially for white listeners, to get it because they're not going to learn this. And I thought also for black listeners, because so much of this isn't learned. I mean, I learned about the, the massacre in Tulsa a long time ago, my husband was like, I just found out about this. How is, this is insane. Why didn't they, t-, you know, we had a big, long discussion about it. But anyway, back to you, Sunny. I just wanted to throw that in. It's more oh, that no, no, excitement no, of fine. like, this is such pertinent, insanely important information. And, and it's a, a great conversation to be had. Absolutely. that,
0: you know, as a, as a woman of color who has had lived experiences with this police behavior and the narrative that perpetuates is for the, the betterment of the country is absolute BS. Right.
2: Yeah. So my, my, my mind is just buzzing from from everything that you're saying. And let me just, let me just say that I, you know, that the black fatigue that you're talking about is totally real. I mean, I think, you know, and, and it's been exacerbated by the, uh, you know like the parade of the videos which i don't you know i can't i can't watch because um, it's just too much Me either i um, won't i yeah. will not yeah and it, it's also like you know like the images of lynching i mean i know this isn't but you know i don't like some some of my colleagues you know show those images when they teach and like, I don't, I don't show them. I I'll, I'll show the white mobs, but mm-hmm. I won't actually show. Cause I think that we then get desensitized to it. And I had fatigue. I mean, I, I will admit like I had a lot of fatigue in writing the I'm book. I'm sure. I'm oh, sure. Yeah. I, had a a lot of yep. I mean, there were, you know, the archive that I used just had like 2000 stories in it that yeah. I, and I only got to tell a handful of them. Um, and I think, you know, I wrote a lot of it, During the summer of 2020, so in some ways it was therapeutic, but it, um, yeah, the fatigue is, is definitely real. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the big things that I wanted to show and and, and why I, I kind of produced, you know, I was sitting on this archive that I had, I had written up some of it, but I didn't know quite what to do with it. And then George Floyd happened. And I really thought it was important for people to understand that this has been going on for a long time. This has been going on for decades, if not centuries. And the difference is, you know, adding to the fatigue that we that it's, it's more documented now. Like what's been going on in our communities that low income people of color have been talking about the police violence, the brutality the aggressive everyday encounters um are now are now being brought to night and light and made undeniable because of the the video evidence because of the proof that we have um but this has a really long history and i, I and i wanted you know especially and maybe we'll talk about this later but um you know ha- getting access to this archive that really showed just how uh frequent and and uh, widespread rebellion was um, into the 1970s was really important. And for me, the you know the story of of Cairo, Illinois, uh, haunted me. I mean that it was it was like more than fatigue. It was like it, it felt like a horror movie to me. I mean, essentially, you know, this town at the southernmost tip of Illinois. Um, so basically, the south just under, um, half black was completely terrorized by the white political and economic establishment and the white supremacist mob that was also deeply entangled with the white supremacist, uh, w- or with the white establishment and the police department. Um, and Carol w- is really a store is exceptional in one ways for the, for its violence. I mean, it was, you know, I talk about this in the book, but like what I consider the longest rebellion, because it lasted from 69 to 72, three years were essentially, um, white, you know, the white mob, which included, you know, businessmen in the town and, and district attorneys and, you know, you name it. Um, would stand on the Mississippi levee and shoot into the segregated housing project called Pyramid Courts um, night after night for hundreds of nights during this period. And and in response, the black residents of Cairo, you know, armed themselves in self-defense began shooting back but also launched a nonviolent uh, protest campaign boycotting the, uh, the the white stores downtown I mean the essentially black care rights were locked out of educational opportunities locked out of jobs um, and and lived in horrible deteriorating housing conditions so they were you know battling battling those realities on two fronts um, both, you know, with with guns to protect the community, but also through legal channels, and to try to win political representation, of which they had absolutely none. Um, and so, you know, Caro's example is exceptional, but it's also such an example. It's like a warning to us all about like what what racism can ultimately do, because the white elite of the town, rather than concede. <laughs> rights and political power to black residents just let the economy of the the town completely tank the black residents who boycott you know basically said well we're not going to patronize these white businesses so that people can buy guns to shoot at us at night they successfully led to the closure of 17 businesses you know many of the people the white uh more mobile people who could leave did, or their children left um Mm -hmm. the town is now considered a ghost town and this is again a warning about like what racism can ultimately do. If you hold on to white supremacy like that, it just, it kills, it leads to the, de- it can lead to the death of communities, the death of vibrant communities for all of us. And so I think that's one of the things that was surprising to me about this story because, you know, when I was researching Cairo and reading into the accounts and talking to people who who were there, who lived there at the time, you know, like you would think this is the kind of terrorism that the black community experience on an everyday basis, it feels like you know, like the night, like the earlier in the 20th century, that this was still going on in the 1970s, and that there this was still going no on. avenue, yeah, like no protection because of the entanglement of the police and the the political and economic elites and the whole system there for the black residents to <laughs> gain any rights or prevent their like prevent. White residents from sicking uh, German Shepherd canines on black kids as they walked home from school. I mean, this this is in the 1970s, and I think that's one of the things like, we don't. I think I don't think we we have recognized how recent um, and how enduring this kind of mob terrorism is. And you know, of course, we saw this mobilization and this resurgence um, during the Trump administration, and definitely, you know, kind of like really surfacing on, on January 6th, but this is, this is a part, this has been go, this is, this is the precursor to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are the, these are the grandparents of, uh, of, 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 the people who attacked the Capitol on, on January 6th. And, and, you know, just reminds us that there is, there is a really, really rich tradition of this type of violence, which never gets <laughs> labeled criminal Right. Uh, In the same way that protests for racial justice, whether or not violent or violent do and and has historically also been deeply entangled with um, with the police,
0: you know, and I'll also add when, you know, just talking about the story and how the um, African-American citizens had to arm themselves to protect, you know, their families, you know, their property and their is a resurgence of the African-American community um, purchasing firearms and permits and all the licensing and everything that goes with that. And that is concerning for many people. I think the non-melanated side or community, I should say, because it's like, okay, why are all these uh, people of color purchasing firearms? Well, who didn't see the insurrection? Who right. you see the the khakis and the tiki's, the tiki torches? Who has not seen all of that, and who has not seen that there's not much being done about it? And so, you know, I have to say, I, I can't, I can't imagine, but I'm also hopeful that I'm never put in a position where someone comes to my place of residence to uh, attempt to remove me because they believe that I don't belong. In this community. And so, you know, I know that's, you know, kind of roundabout way and probably for another show, but I wanted to touch on that because there is a concern um, that people of color are, are owning more firearms. And I'm like, well, what is the concern? Like the non-melan popul- popul- non-melanated population has had firearms and weapons of mass destruction for eons and nothing is ever said.
2: Right. Nothing. Right. There's a great new book by, um, Carol Anderson, the, uh, historian at Emory. And she talks about this and she talks about how the second amendment has never, was never meant for black people, has never applied for black people. And actually, I mean, this is a big insight that I got out of the book that I didn't even, you know, didn't even put together before, but that the second amendment itself was about, was a concession that, um, that the like new England colonial elite made to the Southern, uh, the Southern representatives in order to like keep them in the union because they, because in, in slave owning communities, again, because the threat of rebellion has always been so real slave owners, especially on big plantations had guns. They needed guns because they were outnumbered by uh, enslaved Africans who they were, you know, treated as property and, 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 and working under abysmal conditions. So there's always been, because of the threat, of this of rebellion there's always been an attempt to limit the access to um black people's uh gun ownership but i think you know on the flip side of that we've also always seen um you know black people arming themselves for self-defense like my my grandfather who grew up in columbus georgia um Kept guns in the house because just to protect himself against uh, white supremacists, and he had no other, you know, re- way to do so. That's the only way you can protect your family, and that's one of the things that, you know, I really talk about in the book to help us understand this new form of violence that emerges. That you know, after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, the kind of main thrust of uh, civil rights and racial justice protests really transitions from nonviolent direct action to this move like we saw in in Cairo for armed self-defense because if conditions hadn't changed and you're not your community is not getting protected from police violence and white supremacist violence then the logical response is to arm themselves I mean I I think you know this is something that like I've even talked about in my household um if 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 you know that a white mob has (laughs) gone you know it's kind of like yeah like what do you if they have guns, then you have to have guns. I mean, what are you supposed no, to do? Of course. And and that's what the problem is. That's why, you know, we just need to get rid of guns. Uh, we just need to get rid of guns. It's, you know, it's crazy.
1: Well, then you got these fucking baby white people going and with their guns up in cops' faces, yelling about masks and Governor Whitmore. And they don't do it. Right. Like, Damn. Like, it's, I right. want you. I'm like, I, and I do believe it because I'm educated and I know, but it just is sickening. Yes. Yeah, and, and you compare that
2: to, to the way that, again, protesters for racial justice are treated. They yep. get beaten, they get tear gassed um, yeah. during peaceful vigils. And, and you know, yeah, that's a, that's a really, the contrast between the kind of resistance to the COVID restrictions and the, the mobilization of various militias and all of that, um, you know, just reflects, again, like what, what protest is legitimate. And what protest is consistently criminalized, which is why the terminology that we use is so important.
1: One of the things I heard you say in an interview was that you you wrote, I hope people walk away when they read America on Fire, that we have to move beyond reform. Reform is not enough. And if you can expand on that, because I agree, because, again, it just keeps it's the same shit keeps arms sorry I'm so much. Yeah, no, I, the I, same stuff goes I, over I, and over. It's a cycle,
2: right? Yep, exactly. So it, it's the cycle of police violence, of Black Rebellion, but also this this policy cycle. And I think you're exactly right. You know, it's like the focus again, the focus on the on the so you know, on the looting on the breaking of the windows. Takes away from what these, you know, like what this violence is really about. Like what caused this violence? Those are the questions that we should be asking because, right. you know, focusing on, oh, well, you know, a window was broken and we have to, you know, arrest that person and prosecute them gets, continues to perpetuate the cycle, but also like gets us out of really reckoning with, um, in a meaningful way, why you know, again, why somebody feels like this, that they have no other recourse, but to do that in the first place. And so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that my research has, my research demonstrates both in my first book and in this book is that, you know, police reform is not enough <laughs> that we, you know, consistently when, uh, when when violent political rebellion emerges, the response is, okay, you know, that's when, these conversations about um, police community relations and police reform really speed up. I mean, I think that that, that's one of the reasons, you know, obviously the conversation about police brutality and policing in the U S has been, you know, increased in scale since the outbreak in Ferguson in 2014 and the killing of Michael Brown, but it really was last summer. And just the, 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 the violence and the property destruction that we saw in so many cities, and again, we need to emphasize that the vast, vast majority of these protests were completely nonviolent, and that the violence that did emerge was always in response to police uh responding to a peaceful vigil or a nonviolent demonstration with tear gas and by beating protesters. So, you know, the police incited um, much of the violence, um, last summer. So I just want to make sure that that's very, um, very, very clear to the listeners, but this has, you know, that in itself has, I think, um, brought a new dimension to discussions about police reform. And it's always the same thing. Like it's the same thing that I saw in the, when I was going through the Johnson administration archives and the Kennedy archives in the sixties to now, it's always about, okay, more training, better technologies and weapons for police um you know more more community input, whatever that means, which usually doesn't amount to anything, and a continued investment in the police <laughs> and that's not gonna get us out of you know we're we're not gonna train our way out of this we're not gonna we're you know like investing more in things like body cams, don't stop police killings, don't relieve police clearly tensions. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and so what clearly? Literally? What we need to do is is to go back to what uh, the National Advisory Commission on the on civil disorders or the Kerner Commission recommended to the nation and the Johnson administration um, in 1968, which is, you know, they basically they, they told the American people if if we're serious about preventing uh, rebellion, of course they called it rioting. If, if we're serious about prevent, preventing the riots, what we need is a Marshall Plan for American cities. We need to invest in um, in institutions. We need the public and private sector to mobilize for job creation programs uh, for for low-income Americans of color. We need a complete overhaul of uh, public school systems in urban communities. We need to, to revitalize public housing and, and make low-income and, and and middle-income housing available available to people. Basically, we need we need the investment that. Ended up going into police and surveillance and incarceration into communities themselves, and and we never got that. And so, we, you know, we, we have to wonder like what the U.S. would look like today um, if the investment that the Kerner Commission called for had been realized. Uh, but policymakers have been resistant, even though it's recognized that much of the root causes of of poverty and crime are employment issues are about educational disparities. And yet, um, again and again, the solution, the, the investment is in uh, policing those communities and eventually warehousing, um, mostly young men of color, uh, behind bars in the prison system. So, um, you know, we're not, the, the The problem is not policing itself I mean the fundamental fundamentally American policing and you know we talked about this earlier has always been rooted in the kind of um, in in communities of color, social control um, and surveillance right. and in middle class and white communities about protecting people and property and so that 's the fundamental logic. Um, And if we, you know, if we're serious about disrupting that, then we have to make investments outside of the police uh, entirely.
0: I have a question. And so because I want to make sure that I understood what you said and what you meant by it. And also for the audience, when you say policing is not the problem, I'm convinced that policing is the problem. So can you speak to that? Or as part of the problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, I yes, yes. I think I think police. I think policing is the most tangible. I think police forces are the most tangible expressions of systemic racism. But the problems do not start and end with police. The problems, you know, are fundamentally rooted in an unequal distribution of resources and racial inequality and discrimination that has defined and structured social relations in the U.S. historically, and so you know, result if even if like magically, and this would be impossible without changing conditions, but if 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 uh if policing if police community relations were somehow, you know, were were improved, this would not solve the inequalities that are at the heart that that create the circumstances through which, you know, an outside officer, Derek Chauvin with the gun is responding to um you know, a call about a counterfeit uh, $20 bill that ends up in a nearly 10 minute uh, murder. Um, So it's really about redistributing resources in this society and, and bringing about a different kind of governance that's premised on equality and that um, will you know provide vital vital jobs for people, health care, child care, educational opportunities, college scholarships for all American children, houses that don't uh, that have hot water and, 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 and heat and running water and that don't have um, vermin running through them. I mean just a basic standard of living. And 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 support so that um, every person in this country has the things that they need to live a vibrant um, and healthy life and to thrive. And and those things for me are part of what public safety should be. Like I think you know, part of it is expanding our definition of public safety to say you know a safe country means that every, every child, every person, um, you know, has enough food to eat every day. That's to me, part of what safety should be. And so I think the, we need to move, be, we need to move these conversations beyond the police and think about what kind of society we want to build, where the kind of policing as we, as it exists today, isn't necessary. Um,
0: okay. right. yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and Lisa, I know you want to jump in. I just have like one oh, no, more. Go ahead, hun. So, um, Dr. Hinton, when you mentioned uh, having a community voice or the community having a voice uh, in terms of the way that America is shaped and the political tones, if you will, I. My thought on that is, one, which community, because it's not community holistically, like they're listening to the voices of communities that are not um, where black and brown people are not represented. One, and then I hate to say this, but like when you think about the political landscape, there is are a lot of people in politics that really don't want to see, and I know the audience can't see my hands, but it's it's almost like a scale that don't want to see the scale evened out because it's really as simple as having a conversation and the stroke of a pen to make many uh, situations that are not equitable equitable. For people across the board. You know what I mean? So when when I know that they can make these changes in policing, in the infrastructure for education, for housing, for all of that. And then you have people in office, because I guess they're still the, the granddaughters and sons of those who were in office before who have continued to perpetuate this this imbalance. Like it's, it's so deep. It's so layered. I don't want to say it's complex because I always say that, like, we really try—we over over-intellect, over intellectualize racism—but it is very layered in terms of those people, if you will, who can make decisions for the betterment of humanity, and for whatever reason,
2: they're just not. Yeah. Okay. So that that's such a fantastic point, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try. I'm gonna answer the second part first, and then I'm okay. gonna get community at the end because I think that'll help get me there. I mean, I think, you know, part of it uh, so it comes down to uh, racism I and mean, I think, you know, white, white people who are in power are want to hold on to, um, to their power and privilege and I think that we are at this crossroads in this country where, you know, I think starting last year most of the kids under, or most of the, the people in the United States under the age of 16 were people of color Um, so, and, and by 2050 white people are going to be the minority and, and that, and, and now we see a Republican party that's just, that knows that its policies, um, and its platform are not winning and that the only way that it can survive is through minority rule. Um, and so I think we're really, we're really beginning to see, um, you know, a mobilization of, of, of that response to hold on to, uh, to white supremacy and white power. And that's, you know, and the earlier comment about Tulsa made me think too about just the way that, like, there's now this backlash about what they're calling critical rate teaching critical race theory. Which, say it! Yeah. Please, what the yeah. so, so like, like, What the <laughs> Right, it's basically erasing, an attempt to erase the history of racial oppression. Um, exactly what we're talking about today right. from, the, from what we're you know it, it's creating a, a myth of uh of a white republic um and and obscuring you know the the long history of genocide of 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 indigenous peoples and and, slavery and, and yes exactly so um so i think historically and this is this is you know, ultimately why the, the recommendations of the Kerner Commission weren't implemented. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, considered this, you know, great liberal president, didn't even comment on the report, was uncomfortable by the whole thing. And it's, and you know, it has to do with policymakers and, and, and the nature of American racism and a real unwillingness to disrupt the, like, the social order of the, that is, you know, of the United States historically that has consistently placed um, white people on top. I, I think that, you know, The protests of 2020 were really about a rising generation who um, who don't want who don't want to live in that kind of society, who don't want who don't believe in. And there's a broad coalition. um, You know, this is the majority who don't believe in, in a form of governance that invests in incarcerating people more than in educating them. Um, and that in meanwhile, is like ignoring that keeps a defense arsenal and a police arsenal while ignoring the real issue of climate change um and so I think you know this is where most of us are. it's just there is a there's this old guard that um is is well, ref- yeah, and refusing to cede that power and so I think you know when i so the the community question um. You know when I when I, the, I I was talking about communities that are over um, overpoliced and underprotected, but that simultaneously suffer from high rates of gun violence and incarceration, and I think there is this amazing there was this amazing moment during the war on poverty in the 1960s, from 1964 to 1965, when the federal government really only happened for one year, and this is before the war on crime kicked off, like right before. Um, and the federal government began investing in grassroots local organizations directly, giving them millions of dollars in grants because the idea was, okay, if we're gonna fight this war on poverty, then the people who are, um, you know, living in the in, in the community are tar- tar- targeting right. Uh, know best how to identify what what the needs of the community are and how to identify them, and we're seeing the same thing today. I mean, the most promising models for public safety are coming from community-based groups in in the same communities that suffer from high rates of police violence, again, and incarceration and gun violence. And and it's not again thinking about moving beyond the police. It's um, it's interventionists who have been. You know, young young men and women from the community who have been incarcerated, who have been um, in involved with in gun activity, reaching out to young people who are vulnerable to shooting themselves or each other and working with them, not in a punitive model, but in a model that's based on love and care. Um, you know, groups in the community setting up networks to keep the community safe so that police in places like Oakland, through the Oakland Power Projects, you um, you know, so so that police don't have to be called necessarily, which calling the police always threatens to introduce another level of violence. And so I think, you know, I would like to see, and this was called maximum feasible participation under um, community action programs in the war on poverty. And again, I say it only lasted for really a year because soon law enforcement and munici- municipal officials and um, more formal institutions became involved in the way the grants were administered. It, whereas before the federal government was just like here you go we you know we trust you and again i think that the the pushback on that reflects this idea that has also been a guiding policy principle that like poor people and people of color don't know what's best for them <laughs> that outsiders and experts do when we 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 see and we know like today the best models are coming from community groups the best models are are coming from people who have uh, been impacted directly by the systems that we're, that we're trying to transform or abolish or, um, make more equitable within the, the movement by, um, incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. One of the slogans I'm thinking of just leaders USA, which is a great organization based out of New York. The slogan is like those closest to the problem are closest to, to the solution. And that's definitely, agreed. you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's agreed. That is what is going to get us out of this. It's not going to be a group of outsiders. It's about us coming together. And I'm saying like everyone who wants to build a better world, coming together and using an active allyship, right? Using our different (laughs) grounds, right? To come together and build this society. And I I guess I, you know, (laughs) there are a lot of things that make me very sad and upset and negative every day, but I'm, I'm also I think you know this is one of the things that's great about being a professor i get to interact with the younger generation especially the students who are interested in what i'm teaching so it's a somewhat self-selected group but i don't know i'm i find a lot of promise in them and again in in the in the broad coalition that we saw taking to the streets last summer and you know i think the history of the freedom movement shows us that it takes time and it takes dedication but um I believe that we can triumph. I have to. I have, you know, I'm pregnant now. I'm expecting a baby next month. Oh,
1: Congratulations! So, exciting. Um,
2: so I, you know, I, I do it for them. I have to believe, even if we're not going to see it in our lifetime that, like, this conversation, that the work that we're doing, that what we're, you know, is eventually going to lead to to that better society. Because if we go the other way, you know, especially now, if it does become this, if it, if it becomes the America that the republican party that donald trump that the anti critical race theory people want to see um, you know that's the america where we have to have gu- where, where black people have to have guns <laughs> that's the america where um, you know we i talked about just my own identity and 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 how it shaped my life you know one of the things that my mom consistently always said to me is you have to know when to get out like that's the america where we have to know when to get out um, and I think that's, that's part of the, that's part of the Jewish tradition too, like knowing when yes. to leave. Um, and as, as many people are noting, like we're, we're, we're on that, the, the critical race theory is an example of that We're Not to be gloomy cause I'm trying to be hopeful, but <laughs> we got to mm-hmm. keep the pressure on because we're on that track. I mean, that's the other kind of lesson historically. And then I'll shut up cause no, well, you're whatever. amazing, but, um, but yeah, the civil, I mean, the civil right, ra- you know, like policymakers never make changes out of the goodness of their heart. It takes dedication. It takes allyship. It takes coalition building. It takes people in the streets demanding that they make changes. And so we can't, we, especially now, like we can't let our guard down. We have to keep, we have to keep that fight going. Um, I, we, I hold, agree. Our, hold our policymakers accountable because well, I feel like they're not, our democracy is in serious danger right now. And People are not doing enough to to preserve it and to protect the right to vote for people of color that that you know our ancestors have died over died over.
1: <sighs> Go ahead, Lisa, because you know I'm just like <laughs> over here just jump in a bit. go ahead get your, your question in well your- you know I, I well i was thinking about lbj right and i think there's this this misconstrued misconstrued notion about him and you know even my husband who's always reading history and i think he read a whole biography on him at first he's like well wait a second didn't he sign the blah 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 and i'm like yeah but and then he listened to interviews he goes man okay all right yeah i didn't know that so again even someone like him who goes out of his way to learn stuff thought he was learning the right stuff. So talk a little about LBJ and what, what was problematic yeah, with him. Uh,
2: so LBJ is like one of my favorite people in history because he's such a enigma. He's kind of like, right. like you know, in some ways like Jefferson, you know, that he's, um, he's a Jefferson type figure in some ways and very complicated when I started doing the research and I talk, you know, I talk about the Johnson administration in America on fire, but, but it's, I'm, I talk a lot about the great society and the, um, the, the, the the slow merger of the war on poverty and the war on crime in my first book. Um, but it took me a really long time to kind of like weigh with Johnson and wrestle with, um, his intentions. Historians are kind of obsessed with intentionality, like, yeah. you know? Um, and I didn't, when I started the research, I didn't realize, I thought that, you know, when I set out to kind of like tell the history of crime control policy and how we got to mass incarceration, I thought that it, the story began in Nixon. I started doing research in the Nixon library, the white house central files. And then I knew that I had to move back to Johnson and then back to Kennedy, um, from Johnson that it actually started in, in 61. Um, and so you know, it's this, uh, in Johnson, we see this like carrot and the stick approach to dealing with inequality and racial discrimination where, you know, we have a limited war on poverty on the one hand, that's not about, you know, despite the rhetoric, the grand rhetoric is not about structural transformation, but is about, because, You know, under the influence or the guidance of social scientists like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Johnson and others understood black poverty as being the result of pathology, as being the result of behavior, of black behavior, especially in um, female headed households and not socioeconomic circumstances. And so if if black poverty is about behavior, which is what Johnson and others believed, then it could be fought, you know, that then then the war on poverty didn't have to be a structural intervention. It could be remedial education and job training, even if there weren't jobs afterwards, and programs and self-help programs, programs to help the disadvantaged help themselves, as was the like one of the slogans at the time. Um, and 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 so trying to wrestle with um, you know, the, the limitations of the war on poverty and which was the kind of carrot part of the great society. And then the war on crime, which was the stick part, um, you know, the exp- investment, the unprecedented investment that begins in March, 1965 to, um, expand American policing and, um, and, and militarize urban police forces as a riot prevention measure. Um, Johnson broke, you know, and we don't, Again, it's it's surprising. It was surprising to me to learn that it was Johnson who called the war on crime one week before he sent the Voting Rights Act to Congress. Um, And this follows this larger historical tendency where every time the bounds of citizenship expand or rights extend, particularly to black Americans, new forms of criminalization and incarceration emerge. A new racial regime emerges. We see this after... Emancipation with the black codes and the convict lease system—the kind of first mass incarceration—and then we see it exactly 100 years later when Johnson calls the war on crime in '65 as as mostly a riot prevention um, measure. And you know the 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 legacy of Johnson is not the legacy that we feel and experience today. Is, is not the war on poverty programs that he celebrated for, but for the war on crime that he started, for the complete modernization of, of law enforcement and um, the, the requirements, the investment on the part of the federal government in uh, the modernization and expansion of um, not only policing, but also court systems and um, prisons at the state and local level. And so we don't get, at the end of the Johnson administration, right, we don't get that job creation program for low-income Americans, but we get that job creation program for police. And so, you know, it was Johnson that introduced this kind of punitive turn in federal domestic policy, and it's no coincidence that this emerges at the height of progressive social change in the Civil Rights Revolution. So, you know, was this intentional? Was, Was... it took me a it took me a really long time to kind of wrestle with that, and I kept on going back and forth and and ultimately, I think that you know Johnson um, really did have good intentions he He believed that both his policing programs and the war on poverty were his administration's best attempt to improve American society. but like many other liberal social programs. Uh, Johnson was severely limited by his own racism by his own set of racist assumptions, yeah. and so you know the the racist the the racist views that went into the strategies that his administration and Congress developed to address racial discrimination and rebellion um, and crime uh were you know their own Race assumptions were entrenched in the policies that they enacted, and um, and you know set in many ways this self fulfilling prophecy and these cycles of police nice. violence and um, and and black rebellion and ultimately um, mass incarceration as a solution or a way to manage the material consequences of poverty and racial inequality as they appeared through crime and violence. And there it was really eye opening.
1: It, eye-opening. Oh, it well, really was, cool. yeah. And I, I was, and for my husband too. You know, he's like, "Wow, like I have to look at this." I had, I didn't know that, or I didn't, you know, it wasn't presented that way. And and I think it was that we really, it was really good. It's it's we have to know the truth, right? Even though it's ugly and horrific.
0: Well, l- well, let me say this: in having to know the truth, sure. So, whose truth? Mm. Who's telling the truth? Right. And so that's why we're having a conversation, unfortunately, today about critical race theory. I don't know who came up with that name, but telling the truth, like at the end of the day, the bottom line is telling the truth, which is why your husband didn't know what he didn't know, because people are manipulating history, whitewashing history telling the narratives that they want told so that people don't have the full breadth and depth of the story. And so it's, you know, it's, it's frustrating. Right. But I'm like, that's why the question came to me. Like, who's telling the truth, whose truth, because it's not the truth of the people of color. It's not our truth when in school, like we learned about the only thing we learned about people of color when I was in school and I go back to the eighth grade is slavery. We didn't learn about the beauty of people of color and being kings and queens and the wealth and riches and intellect that it took to build the pyramids and on and on till the break of dawn. Like that's not, that's not the lesson I got. So whose truth is it? And how do we fix that? Because the truth is not being told. And I say collectively and globally, because if the truth was being told, it, we wouldn't even be having discussions about critical race theory or the,
2: the 1619 project. Yeah. No, that's one of the things, you know, that, that I think for me, one of the difficult things to wrestle with in, in America on fire was just, you know, Really dealing with some of the shortcomings of the civil rights movement, which you know, like we there's this there's this narrative that, and this is you know what conservatives use a lot to say, you know that okay the civil rights movement solved everything. Now there's equal playing field. Goodbye, and and any and any continued inequalities are people's own fault. You know that it's not related to anything else. The civil rights movement solved everything, and and rebellion itself, um, some of the transformations that we've been talking about in this conversation. You know, really exposed that the civil rights that that for many, especially poor uh, Black Americans, the the civil rights movement did not change everyday conditions. Um, and and f- for especially the young people who kind of grew up witnessing the protests of the nineteen sixties with hope, and then to have it kind of you know end in Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Um, you know, it just uh it just became, it, it became, it, it, it became too much. It became clear that, um, that, you know, these strategies had not secured the kind of inclusion um, that was the ultimate aim.
0: Yeah, and instead of saying um, riots are the voice of the unheard, um, as said by Dr. Martin Luther King, I really wanna say rebellion is the voice of the unheard and it is mm-hmm. so important the language that we use, the words that we attach to these incidents. And I I remember back in 2010, 11, when I wanted to go to Egypt and that's when the the civil unrest, right? That, Mm -hmm. That was the term that was used throughout the United States, all the media outlets. And when we finally got to go to Egypt in 2011 or 12, And we got to see, like, what happened as a result, I'm using air quotes, of the civil unrest. And we got to engage and talk to Egyptians. They corrected us immediately. It was not a civil unrest. It was a revolution. And I never, ever forgot that. I never forgot it, and that was so powerful to hear them say and to correct us because, again, the media is going to paint a picture and create a narrative that is not necessarily the truth of the people.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. true. You know, Dr. Hinton, the time went by so quickly. I know, I right? You've got to come back. First of I will- all, I would love if you come back and talk about being – a person of color and being a Jew. I've been wanting to have some. I think it's so interesting. And just to talk more about this, how do people find you and all of your amazing work? I
2: am. um, I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth Hinton, E-L-I-Z-A-B-H-I-N-T-O-N. And I'm also I'm at Yale. I'm a professor there. So if you put my name in your search bar, I'm pretty easy to
1: find. Great. Well, everyone has got to read this book, *American Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion. You can find me at Lisa Davis MPH. And Sunny? I am at
0: It's Sunny Days. But, you know, I say every week, if you want poodles cooking, what's going on with the cicadas, and I'm smoking cigars, that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> Follow me there. Otherwise, and where the juice is, Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook, Active Allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And that's our Facebook group. Please follow us there.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at ActiveAllyship.podcast. Thank you so much.